Alrighty, everybody. Welcome back to some more Rare Petro content. Today, we've got the first of our new series, Industry Leaders Spotlight, where we will be interviewing industry leaders across oil and gas. I'm joined today by Scott McNear, the moderator for this interview, and the CEO himself of Rare Petro, Anthony McDaniels. Welcome. Hey, how you doing? It's good to be here. So first, I mean, this is Industry Leader Spotlight, so tell us about yourself. How did you first breach into the industry? How did you start a business, become a leader? And tell me a little bit about Rare Petro. Um, so started working in the industry in the summer of 2007, 13 years ago. And I worked for operating companies for about eight years, almost exactly. And uh, it was actually five years ago yesterday that I got downsized from Lynn Energy at the time in Denver, Colorado. And um, at that point, I have about eight years in the industry. So I'm like, well, let's take a shot. You know, I just start consulting out of my basement, you know, uh, which is where I am right now because COVID shutdowns and whatnot. But, um, you know, so kind of the last downturn, um, although it wasn't what this one is, but the last downturn started this organization and uh, just kind of wanted to start out mainly with, well, let's just try to consult. But being in your early thirties at the time, you're like, well, I got to differentiate. So how do I do that? I ran across the coder said, Hey, can you put this thing on a smartphone? This little reference app calculator thing. You did that. We do about a dozen of those and say, man, there, there could be more to this. Maybe we should just consult on one side and set up another, you know, entity under the same umbrella that do um, software development, leveraging mobile devices and cloud, uh, essentially kind of mix industry experience under the same roof as coders, not trying to be more than what we are, uh, just trying to put to get, to, to, together the right ingredients, right? So you have a lot of people that are industry professionals, very smart, they try to code and some of them are good at it. That's not their main main professional, so it's maybe a little hard for them to make commercial level stuff all the time. And then you've got a lot of people who are very good at coding, but they don't understand the nature and the use of what you might be making for, say, somebody out in the field for oil and gas. So um, the other thing that you run across a lot is that you have coders in another country, which isn't all bad, but now you have more than one language barrier. You've got English, and then you've got oil field. Uh, so we try to have our all of our coding done onshore, uh, United States. So we only have one language barrier instead of two or three. Um, and so doing all that together, you know, just trying to make platforms that'll be kind of more of a utility use, uh, leveraging all these devices out there. And, uh, and so that basically we now have kind of explicitly, I mean, we have Yes Consulting and that, you know, gets us in oil companies and we, we provide professional services like a data entry or drawing well bores or engineering evaluations, uh, well site coordination. Um, and then we've got, you know, trying to make platforms leveraging mobile devices and cloud. And we have some oil company customers now, and uh, they are still continuing, uh, some of them even in this downturn, because they're seeing this as, well, okay, a big downturn makes you have to get creative, right? So, <laughs> you know, maybe, it might be painful, but sometimes you say, what, what can I do different? You know, what can I do to be a little bit more viable, I guess, as things are changing and, and things are, you know, as if they weren't digitizing enough. Now everybody's having meetings remotely. Uh, you know, there's just going to be more and more of this push into the digital realm on all fronts at all levels and in every industry. And this is just 
the COVID downturn is probably the accelerant, honestly, to to that in a lot of industries such as oil and gas that are notoriously laggards when it comes to adopting things like that. So anyway, that's kind of um, that's kind of where we came from, what we do, and what our thoughts are. So. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, very recently that five-year anniversary from, well, another downturn. How does that one differ from this one we're experiencing today? I mean, obviously, timeline's different, a lot of different factors. What do you notice? Uh, yeah, this one is big. Um, I don't think that's news to anybody. Um, <clears throat> but essentially, you know, I've seen three downturns. I mean, I started in 2007, and then I a year and a half later is a financial crisis. I mean, I remember watching a low going from 140 down to like 30 or so. And that was pretty jarring. Uh, of course, the oil industry was one of the few industries that came back out of that fast. So, all right, you know, saddle back up, keep going, you know, didn't lose the job on that one. Um, and then the next one, you know, 2014 oil was close to $100, I think, again. And then in February of 15 or so, I think it gets down around 30, sub 30, whatever. A uh, lot got downsized on that one. You know, and then, and then this time, you know, on, on a dollar's move basis, I mean, oil didn't go from 100 down to sub 30. But we were already producing more and more oil. And global demand was starting to be less anyway than global supply, especially with Russia and Saudi deciding, you know, well, let's flood the market, bankrupt the U.S. shale producers, which is probably largely the aim of Putin and Russia and collateral damage for Saudi not being happy with Russia and not following their, their quotas on, on the oil they had taken off the market the last couple of years. Um, but now we have this pretty much unprecedented decline in global demand. I mean, it's one thing to deal with supply issues, but when you combine that with simultaneous demand issues, I mean, we haven't had demand destruction in the oil industry on this magnitude and on a percentage basis even in such a short period of time ever. I mean, never. I mean, you had the Great Depression. You know, it didn't destroy 20, 30% of oil demand globally within a month. You know, it, you had world wars. That actually increases oil demand, right? It causes a lot of destruction, but it increases oil demand around the war machines, right? I, this is just totally, this is a big one. I mean, I'm talking to people who are old enough to be my dad or my granddad, and they're like, I haven't seen anything this big. You know, I mean, you just, this thing is enormous. The hope is that it won't be as prolonged, but the depth of the demand destruction probably won't be as prolonged. I mean, it's not like we're going to be down 30% globally for the next three years, I don't think. But to get back to the demand that we had before this, I mean, I'll just tell you one thing. I was talking to the CEO of a major airline just not that long ago, and they, they obviously use a lot of liquid fuels, right? General. And it's one indicator. I mean, <clears throat> he said that right now, this is as of a week or two ago, they're down 96% on their revenue. They said the most optimistic projections the airline industry has, and this was as of a week or two ago, is that they would be back to 60% of demand by the end of the year. So, you know, to think that, to think that 
I mean, this shutdown caught everybody off guard. I mean, I was interviewing with you, Tavis, just a month ago, and I did not think that, you know, there are certain floors in the market and this and that, but then this thing happens where the demand destruction is so fast and so deep that, I mean, all bets are off, right? Can you see oil below $20? Yeah, you just did. Uh, can you see oil below 10 it's possible now. And that just, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, this one is also creating such a massive rapid fill up in all storage globally, floating and onshore subsurface, you know, all storage we have is, I mean, it's almost filled. Uh, what happens when there's nowhere to put it? It doesn't matter how you can produce it or how good your balance sheet is. There's no, there's nobody to take it. There's no market. And if there's no market, there's no revenue. You know, uh, what happens to the hedge contracts? Probably going to be all over the board, but hedge contracts, there's a lot of little companies hedged. A lot of times hedge contracts come with volume commitments. What happens if you can't meet your volume commitment because the refiner says, I, I, I can't take it. Sorry, full. Gasoline stocks are starting to come to the brim. Refined products going to the brim. They got nowhere to put it. So what happens when the refiners, and they've already started, by the way, I've heard of various reports, not just reading about it, but also talking to people around, uh, refiners aren't taking shipments and people are going to have to start shutting off production. Not because, I mean, a lot of it is negative cash flow right now. Yeah, but there's some that doesn't even matter. There's nowhere to take it. You can't produce it. I mean... <laughs> So what happens, right? Like this thing could be, uh, this, I mean, I, I don't want, I don't want to be a doomsday, right? Like it will be better. We'll come out of this, but we're starting to see things that honestly, there is no precedent for this level, this rapid, I mean, what happens, what happens when you get into a world where, you know, you also have regional spreads are, are widening, Right was talking to somebody this morning. They said that, you know, the spread between some California crude and Brent used to be pretty much nothing. And now it's about $10. That's a problem. That's the spread. So it goes even further than what you see for oil prices. What's the regions? Are they going to be able to move the product? Are the refiners going to pay for it? Or are they going to say, hey, man, just wait, I guess, turn everything off. If that violates hedge contracts, I mean, basically, I think what's going to happen is a massive consolidation. This was already kind of in the wings anyway. There's going to be banks seizing assets from oil companies. There's going to be contract operators going out, like, going out there and trying to run these things like as much as they can. And um, when it's all said and done and the dust settles, only the strongest are going to survive. It's not even so much a question of size, but strength, right? What's your business model? Are you doing stuff that has to be done or are you doing stuff for growth? Yeah, you're doing stuff for growth. This is going to be a very hard, probably decade, right? If you're involved with drilling wells, if you're involved with exploratory onshore US, this decade might be hard. If you're involved with day-to-day -day stuff, you might still have a really hard couple of years, uh, but you might survive. And if you have a good balance sheet, if you have cash flow, if you're doing things that have to be done, doing things to try and make things more efficient, um, you'll have a better chance to survive. 
And I think what's going to come out of it, though, is a lot more of an efficient industry. And I think our lifting costs are going to really drop because they're going to have to. And um, I also think, you know, hopefully, and this is just my opinion, but I think we're going to get rid of some old laws that just don't really make sense anymore, such as the Jones Act. If you've ever looked into the Jones Act, I mean, it's a relic. I mean, basically, it makes it impossible for us to send our own crew to our own people in our own country. Uh, get rid of it. You know, tariffs, well, people have different opinions on it. My opinion is anybody that says let the free markets be free, I'm going to look straight at Russia and I'm going to look straight at OPEC. Say, they're not playing by free market rules. They're manipulating it for their benefit. So in my opinion, you got to fight fire with fire. Well, if the refiners can't handle it, infrastructure bill, retool them. We got a lot of crude in North America. We got a lot of heavy in California, heavy in Canada. We have medium stuff, I believe, in Mexico. Why do we need stuff overseas? Especially if it might take a couple years for demand to come back in full to where it was before this started. You know, I mean, I think a lot of those conversations are very awkward for people. And they're rife with a bunch of different opinions and they're all just opinions, but at least it's going to bring up these conversations. Right. And I think in the whole, that's going to be good for the industry domestically. And, uh, you know, it doesn't make any of it right, but what's right and wrong sometimes depends on what moment in time are you looking at? Because if you're looking at 20 years ago, what the better decision or the worst decision, I mean, it, it all changes with, we didn't have all this shale production anymore. You know, I also didn't think that uh, U.S. production would drop as fast, but now it's so deep, so fast that, yeah, we could be looking at being down two, three million barrels a day in the next 10 months. I mean, I was looking at it. Uh, it's already dropped. I think it's kind of political gamesmanship. Trump said that the U.S. would come. <laughs> Mexico didn't want to drop 400,000. They only wanted to do 100,000 to get to that, you know, it was OPEC excluding, you know, OPEC, OPEC plus, everybody excluding Mexico was, was supposed to be 9.6 taken off a million a day. Russia was, or uh, Mexico was supposed to do 400,000. Mexico only says, oh, we're going to do 100. And then Trump says, oh, the U.S. will come in, we'll do 250, 300, and, you know, get you to about your 10 million. Well, <laughs> it's already dropped by that much in the United States. Made a commitment that wasn't hard to make. So, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, uh, we're, we're going to respond pretty quick without having a central controlled government. Uh, you know, everybody's like, oh, you know, the central controlled governments can respond. I think it, I think it's going to be painful, but pretty good overall for the U.S. market when we come to the other side, because we're going to have a lot more, okay, well, what can we do on our own? You know, how much of our own product can we refine without having to rely on global oil? Uh, you know, what, um, what things can we do to be most efficient when we produce, right? Um, we have this amazing ability to bring a lot of production online pretty quick if oil prices were to say jump north of $75 a barrel. And that's in today's dollars, mind you. Um, they would get out there and before you know it, you'd have a half a million barrels a day more production in the first 10, 11 months, right? They'd go out there and infill some of these wells, bring them on. You know, we have all the pipeline capacities now we need for that. So, you know, I mean, I think, I think 
while this one's going to be really deep and hard, and it already is, uh, I think that the U.S. industry as a whole is going to come out better because of the discussions and the conversations that, that we're going to have to have. Um, I mean, Russia and Saudi can argue all the time they want, and they're going to go back and forth and have a little piss and match and how much are we going to cut? You know, how many other people are going to, are they going to, you know, put in austerity measures? Uh, but us, well, we're just going to say, well, we can't sell it or we can't sell it for as much. So we're not going to bring as much online. We're going to start shutting things in. And I mean, the United States oil production already has, like I said, already has dropped hundreds of thousands of barrels a day in weeks and without no edict from the central government without even the railroad commission having yet to step in, which they might still. Uh, so, I mean, the United States is going to respond because we have, we have free market. And as far as I'm concerned, again, when it comes to the argument about tariffs from outside of the United States, those guys aren't playing by free market rules. So don't sit here and tell me about free markets when the problem is coming from somebody who doesn't listen to free markets, right? They're only worried about, the only reason in my opinion as well, that Russia and Saudi came to the table so fast was because they gotta sell something. And if they fill up global storage too fast, they can't sell anything. And so this goes beyond, you know, I mean, this is like mutually assured destruction in global oil markets. Nobody wins. It's like throwing a bunch of nukes at each other. I mean, you can't, nobody wins this, right? So that's why I think they came to the table. I think they're going to come to the table again if it looks like storage is filling up. Um, if oil prices stay sub 20, get into the low teens, maybe even start barking at single digits, I wouldn't be surprised to see Russia and Saudi come to the table again. And, and by then the U.S. production might be down a half a million barrels a day. And then the railroad commission might say, all right, it's time to do this. And then we take another half a million barrels a day. And then, you know, so there will be responses to this and there's going to be a lot of good conversations. So uh, that's kind of a long winded answer to your question about, you know, how do I see this? I hope I so, answered fairly decently. No, I so, think you did. You brought up a lot of great points. I mean, you mentioned you didn't want to be a doomsday naysayer and all bad, but you mentioned some things. It, it's likely going to get worse before it gets better with the oversupply, terrible commodity pricing, and then getting out into January of next year with the hedging. It's, it's going to be tough times for everybody. But what is Rare Petro doing to try to weather the storm there? Is there any restructuring, any change of plan? Um, so thankfully, we don't have to consider restructures or anything very much at all. Hopefully we don't have to. Um, we're pretty lean because the company was born in a downturn. <laughs> so you know, it's in the DNA of the company basically is what I tell people. Um, one of the things we're doing is, is we're upping our digital content such as this, you know, say, hey, you know, there isn't much else to do. Um, if you're not actively working on a project with an oil company and you're part of this organization, it's even hard to get together in the office regularly or not even really allowed to some degree. So, okay, what can we do? Well, let's, let's, let's digi up, right? Let's digital up, right? Let's get out there and get on zoom and record content and put podcasts out there. And, uh, and really, you know, <laughs> the point of a business, and I've said this in other forums, other interviews and whatnot, 
the point of a business, at least most business in the real world, right? I'm not talking about banks maybe, but uh, the real businesses of the world, the ones, they, their point isn't to make money, it's to generate value, to provide some level of products and or services, right? Uh, viability comes from generating value, right? A lot of people are stuck at home right now. And just because they might start following our content, following our LinkedIn, listening to our podcasts, watching these interviews, that doesn't mean that, you know, we're going to say, oh, start paying us. No, I don't know how things change in the future, but right now let's just do this because we can. It's low risk. It doesn't cost a lot to do. But it's generating some value, I believe, right? If we bring on industry leaders and we talk about things going on for everybody's at home looking for something to watch, listen to, whatever, regard to, I mean, the other thing is there is so much news out there that you can't keep track of anything going on. So who's putting out regular content for oil and gas about all this crisis? There are other people, people bigger than us in this space, podcasts and this and that for the oil industry. But there's a lot less, right? There's a lot less to choose from. So maybe we can be one of them because we're already out there. This isn't the only thing we do. So that doesn't make us maybe the best at it, but we can add a lot of color as far as, well, we have active engagements and services and customers doing this, doing that. Other people are working on this. This is kind of a division of ours doing this digital content and let's ramp it up. So that's what we're doing. You know, we're, we're saying, well, let's ramp up this because people are probably going to be hungry for it. And, um, you know, that makes more people aware of us. It provides value to them, hopefully, right? That they can listen to this stuff and they can you know, hear another set of ideas, hear somebody talking about what's going on. Really mostly focused about oil and gas, right? Um, so that's what we're doing. Uh, and we are currently still pushing forward our software development and still have an active customer or two that are saying, yeah, let's keep going. Let's keep going. You know, let's, let's take this opportunity because some people, if they're not going to be put out of business by this, they understand there's a little short-term pain, but if they can ride it out, the opportunities are going to be immense, right? What a lot of people are losing, the few that don't, they have a lot of opportunity. So there's going to be some players out there. And we already know one in our own envelope that say, you know what, this kind of sucks, but we're going to be okay let's keep pushing this app development stuff forward. So those are the things we're doing is to stay relevant, still generate value, you know, and you know, that's, you know, if we can keep going every month, we can get through this pain. That's just another month closer to when the pain's over, you know? And I love that. Maybe I'm just a little bit biased because I'm part of the Rare Petro team, but yeah, that's the mission. Modernizing the oil field through creating value for customers and people throughout and trying to keep people in the know because you're right, there's just too much to sort through. But on a broader sense, for the rest of the industry, you kind of dipped your toes into it a little bit earlier. What do you think is going to come out of this downturn crisis for the industry? I mean, you said things will likely get better. One of the things you mentioned, lifting costs will decrease. What other large changes will we likely see widespread? Um, again, there's going to be a lot more digitization, right? There's going to be a lot more. Um, I think in business structures, um, I think there's going to be a lot more streamlining of personnel in oil companies, if that makes sense. Like I don't, oil companies already are lean when it comes to overhead um, and overhead is not even close to the largest percentage of their costs. 
a very capital intensive industry. But I think it's going to be, um, I think there's going to be a lot more of, hey, you know what, I can't afford, you know, there, there's hundreds of small EMPs, private, that popped up in this country in the last five, 10 years. And right now they're stuck on these assets. Not all of them are going to go under. Some of them will get absorbed by major, major companies or larger companies, uh, but not all of them. And there will be ones that don't get absorbed by the Chevrons of the world that also aren't going to go totally under, right? And so what are they going to do to get their support? Do you really think they're going to go down the route of, well, we don't have a lot of cash flow right now, so we're going to hire a bunch of uh, even, even two or three highly salaried employees? Probably not. Maybe they say, let's go find a consulting agency that we can say, you know, look at this for 20 hours a month and then they pay that bill. I think, I think honestly, that's going to become a little bit more of a relevant situation um, for anybody who's an employee of a company and doesn't agree, feel free not to agree, feel free to agree to disagree. Uh, but this is pretty much, uh, it's not a projection based on some like, oh, I did all this stuff and figured it out. Look at every other industry, man. Look at every other industry, personnel downsizing. Why? Leveraging technology. Leveraging technology, Zoom, making people more aware. Hey, we can have a lot of meetings, still look at each other eye to eye, not have to be physically in the same area. <laughs> okay, well, guess where that goes? That goes to, well, I could have consultants that are based out of Golden, Colorado as a company and they can still help me out. Maybe they go to the field once or twice a month. I, that, this is what happens with a lot of employed engineers anyhow. They're sitting on a computer most of the time. Meetings they have are, it's really just about looking each other in the eye. Uh, you know, so you put all this stuff together and it's like, look at every other industry went that way. So I think that that's one thing that it may not happen. You know, people might say, no, we're going to consultants. We're going to go with our own employees. Big companies will stick with their own employees. There's a lot of small companies that won't be able to afford that, but they'll still need help. So I think that's one change that people need to at least prepare for the possibility of. Uh, if you want exposure and you don't have an opportunity to work at a big company like Chevron, for example, or Exxon, uh, you might be forced to consider consulting on some level if you have the experience in the network to try and do it. Uh, there's also going to be this push into digitization. Again, uh, there's going to be a lot more, let's leverage smartphones, tablets, the cloud. Uh, there's going to be a lot of that going on. All of these things are going to be aimed at trying to have less of a need for so much personnel. It's not that the technology is going to come in and take people's jobs. It's that the environment of the market and the people running companies and investing in companies are going to say, be lean. You have to leverage digital. Do it as much as you possibly can. And that's what's going to drive it. And the people that embrace that, or at least entertain the possibility that that's where this is going for 90% of the industry and the workers out there that don't do the wrench turning jobs, but even some that do, uh, you better consider that as a very real situation and try to prepare yourself accordingly, mentally. If uh, I'm wrong about all that, learning about 
how to do different things with mobile devices in the cloud, whether you're an individual um, or you're a company, it's not gonna hurt you. Stuff's everywhere. It's just gonna be more everywhere, if you will, in the next couple of years. So, you know, broader sense, it's gonna be getting leaner, getting leaner, getting leaner, less people, more technology. How can we be more, you know, creative about the technical support that we do have to have? The surveillance that we're going to do how are we going to do that in ways that aren't as expensive as the ways we did it for the last 20 30 40 years those are all the discussions that are going to be had they're being had right now and so the change is going to be to you know it's going to be a huge personnel downsizing in this industry no matter how you cut it whether you believe or disbelieve in my thoughts about what's going to happen for digital reasons, this kind of destruction of the commodity demand, we have all this available to us globally and domestically. There's going to be a huge reduction in personnel count one way or the other in this industry. And the way I see it is the ones that are going to have a better chance to still be viable in this industry as that reduction occurs are going to be the ones that embrace modernity, <laughs> right? And so that's that's where I think it's going, and and it will make us smarter. We will give up some things, but nothing's perfect, right? I mean, it's just the march of progress. Some progress is scary to some, destructive to many, um, but as a whole, if it makes the industry more viable in this next couple of decades, then it's better for the industry as a group, which is better for everybody who uses our products, which is essentially the entire world. All up to that, Anthony. Um, how much do you think the oil industry will actually adopt a digitalization after this downturn because they've normally been so adverse to integrating new technology? Um, I think they're going to be pretty receptive to it. I mean, it, if you're not receptive to any of this stuff, then I challenge you to explain that to your board of directors, right? If you're a public company and, and all these bankers are already looking at you saying, you guys are an old dying industry. How do you stand out? I mean, if, if you, like I said, if you're a few of the majors, it's fine. But I mean, even the majors are putting stuff out there. They're going to do all these things. A lot of it, they're going to try and make it themselves and you know do their own little in-house stuff but um i mean i just it's not so much that i have this belief that all these people are going to just wake up and oh this is what we should do because yay no i i think i think it's the cross currents of culture and markets that's going to force the expectation of said like i said how are you going to explain this to your board of directors or your investors that were what doing the same crap we did for the last 30 years I, and not doing anything different. I mean, the only thing we can really, we've already had huge success in drilling horizontally and fracking and getting really good oil production and volumes uh, in relatively short order. Uh, but where are the next breakthroughs going to come from to think that the next breakthroughs aren't going to at least require some level of further digitization and leveraging of mobile and cloud is naive probably, right? Because it's just, where do you go, right? 
where do you go to become more efficient? Technology is always where people look. All right, what's available to us out on the market now that you know makes this gives us some small edge, right? So a lot of the gains have already we've we've developed a lot when it comes to exploration, but operations. There's a lot of that stuff's been untouched. People don't really spend capital on that stuff. They just ah go go pump it. Well, okay, at some point you have to say what what is there I can look at and technology always becomes part of the conversation at some level. So, you know, and with small companies that don't have, I mean, you're going to have small privately backed horizontal players, midcon and people will say, and their backers, if, if they're still in business, their backers are not going to give them, here you go. Here's a, you know, how quickly a half a million dollars in salaries adds up when you start trying to pay people a half a million dollars a month. I mean, in salaries adds up when you're trying to pay people $200,000 a year, salaries and taxes and benefits. You know, I mean, you got 10 people and all of a sudden you're burning through millions of dollars a year when the commodity price barely makes you break even before you even have an over, overhead. So, um, you know, are they not going to consider what else can you do out there to get the help you need without having as many people on your payroll? They're going to have to consider that. Yeah. And then one last follow-up question. I know personally as a student on the team, working with some other students and young professionals, you provided a lot of wisdom, but a good portion of the audience is also students and young professionals. So what kind of words of wisdom do you have for them for getting out into oil and gas in times like these or what they can do to better differentiate themselves from other candidates once this all blows over? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. First of all, it's not going to be the end of the industry. In all reality, if you study the, I'll start with this. This isn't the death of the oil industry. Because if you study the history of energy, and I mean the hist global history of energy, what did we use? When did we stop using it? The, the dominant energy source always got phased out because it got too damn expensive. Wood, whale oil. We don't use whale oil anymore, at least not in the United States, as far as I know. But we still use wood. The, at the end of the day, though, what really dis dethrones something is it becomes too scarce. And that's demonstrated by it being relatively expensive. It costs a lot to go get it because it's getting harder to get. The fact that we're in the situation, I mean, the cure for low oil prices is an old addict, or um, addict. <laughs> this is an old uh, saying. The cure for low oil prices is low oil prices. That's just what it is. So, you know, I mean, it's going to be basically, you've got to know the industry is still going to be viable. You need oil to make electric cars. You need oil to make wind turbines. You need oil to make solar panels. And the fact that it's so abundant, it means that it's going to be viable for longer. And even when it's finally not the dominant energy source, it's still going to be used because it's got a thousand plus uses. So it's not, the industry isn't going anywhere. So now that I've said that part, all right, check that box. It's not like the industry is going away, right? Anything that's needed a lot and is very abundant doesn't go away. It just goes through its ups and downs. So now that we say that part, all right, I would say 
if you believe that part, then okay, then you next next ask yourself, am I trying to go into this industry because I thought it was going to pay me really good or because I was just generally intrigued by it, right? Passionate maybe could be a word you could use. Uh, it, you, you can't, you got to really have a genuine interest in what you're doing if you're going to be successful in a career in it over the long haul because it's going to go up and down. Every industry goes up and down. If you're just chasing a high paycheck, you're going to go through a downturn. So yeah, you got to, you got to really be intrigued by what you're doing. And okay. So if you believe that the industry isn't a dead industry based on what I postulated, and if you believe that you're truly intrigued by this industry and you're young and you want to get into it, then the final piece is don't be close to, to anything that is a, that is an opportunity, even if it's part-time or, well, I got a degree as a petroleum engineer. I want to sit in an office and I want to do engineering. Dude, gal, whatever, like broaden your horizon, right? It may not look like that. You might have to consider other things that keep you plugged into the industry, even if it's part-time, even if it's not what you thought it was. That's the only way you're going to make it through because there's going to be such a destruction of the count of people that work in this industry that whoever's left standing is going to be the few that, that carry the thing forward. Right? So if you're on, you know, in your twenties, getting out of college, you're just out of college, you got downsized, your job offer got rescinded, you don't have anything and you really want to be in this industry, be open to anything. You know, if it's going out and turning a wrench, being a pumper for somebody who's got a job, don't discount that possibility. If it's, Hey, you know, help us out doing this stuff part time. You know, we can give you a little bit of work and, you know, it is what it is. Make time for it. If you really want to be in this industry, make time for it. Be open to something that you didn't think you'd be doing just to stay relevant because when this does pass and there's a lot of people that retire out, age out, a lot of young people, they're going to have to go to another industry because they just, you know, it's not that there's anything wrong with somebody that thought they wanted to be in oil industry. This happens and they say, I'm going to reevaluate. There's nothing wrong with somebody that does that. I mean, sometimes you have to have things happen to make you question, okay, this is really where I want to go. But for those who do want to say, no, I stuck to doing this. I want to do it. This is I'm intrigued by this industry. Then educate yourself, watch stuff, read stuff, be open to opportunities, part-time field office or no office. I, that's the only way. And then the, the few who are in their twenties that make it through the next couple of years and are in this industry for that whole time, they're going to be probably relatively in a good spot because they're going to be part of a very small pool of people compared to what we had just a cup, you know, not that long ago here. Yeah. So for those of you out there, I mean, listen to Anthony, don't jump ship, get your foot in the door somewhere, make the most of this opportunity. So I think that about wraps up all the questions I have. Scott, do you have anything else? Oh, that's it for me. All right. Well, thank you, Anthony, for joining us on the Industry Leader Spotlight first episode. And uh, is there anything else you have to say? Maybe some promotion for your company? No, I'll leave that to you. All right. <laughs> thank you, everybody. And until we see you next time, take care. All right.